Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll hear about a new program for people with cancers of the esophagus, stomach, pancreas, bile ducts, or liver. Surgery first is not always right. And in our integrated approach, we also have a full team of experts reviews every case and formulates an individualized treatment plan for each patient. Then we'll discuss colorectal cancer and what's important to know about prevention, screening, diagnosis, and treatment. Once uh, a cancer is diagnosed, we have to establish what stage uh, that cancer is because that will determine how we uh, approach it. And we'll learn about what happens when a mother-to-be is infected with hepatitis C. It would just be adding one more test to the panel. It would be pretty unnoticeable to a woman undergoing prenatal care. All that in a selection from our Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore medicine, science, and health with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today we'll talk about colorectal cancer, and we'll learn what happens when a pregnant woman has a hepatitis C infection. But first, we'll hear about a new program for people with cancers of the foregut. The Upstate Cancer Center has formed a new multidisciplinary team, this one devoted to cancers of the foregut, which includes stomach, esophagus, pancreas, liver, and bile ducts. These particular cancers tend to be complicated, so patients can benefit by having input from a team of experts. And we have two of those experts here with us today. They're both surgeons, Dr. Jason Wallen and Dr. A.J. Chain. Welcome to you both. Thank Thank you. Well, I had not heard the word um, foregut, but when I looked it up, I saw that the National Institutes of Health has a, a team devoted to, to this, and other cancer, major cancer centers do as well. Um, why does it make sense to group these cancers together? Just uh, their geographic you know, location? or for, for one reason, number one, uh, the management of, and for the context of this uh, talk, we're mainly going to be talking about esophageal and gastric cancers. Uh, of course, duodenal cancers also uh, fall into that group. That's the first part of the small intestine. And there's some overlap with cancers of the bile duct and pancreas, uh, which are also grouped into hepatobiliary cancers. So we these manage... are these are cancers that deal with um, right. the, the digestive system? Correct. Esophagus the... is the tube that goes to your stomach. Correct. It's the upper part of the digestive system. And the main reason for grouping them together, and Dr. Wallen can also comment on this, number one, sometimes they can be very difficult to distinguish from each other, especially cancers of the esophagus and the stomach. Number two, making this distinction is important because the treatments of these cancers are very different. And number three, regardless of whether it's esophageal or whether it's gastric cancer, the treatment can be highly complex and highly variable. And lastly, you know, there's few centers and country and in the region that are actually have the expertise or equipped to manage them. I think one of the other important things is is that um, 
combining experts on abdominal surgery and chest surgery, um, and uh, as well as oncologists and radiation doctors that have experience in treating cancers in those areas is really helpful because just because of where they're located, they uh, often require approaches from uh, both from the chest and from the abdomen. And so there's a lot of parallels, both mechanically and biologically, uh, and we can rely on each other's expertise to help out when things get difficult. So uh, let's talk about how these cancers behave. It's interesting to me that you said it's difficult to tell them apart sometimes. Yeah, it can be very difficult to tell them apart. In fact, I know for a fact Dr. Wallen has been referred patients uh, diagnosed with esophageal cancer who in reality had gastric cancer. And I've been referred patients uh, to be treated for gastric cancer who actually turned out to have esophageal cancer. And the reason for this is that cancers that arise in the upper part of the stomach, the true stomach, within five centimeters of the upper part of the stomach, actually behave like esophageal cancers. And it's incredibly important to make the distinction between esophageal cancer and gastric cancer because the treatments are radically different. And even the diagnostic approach is radically different. And it's important to embark upon the right course straight away. So from the patient's point of view, are the symptoms the same for the patient or? They can be. Um, the esophageal cancers typically are uh, typically present with difficulty swallowing and stomach cancers that are very high in the stomach can cause that as well. Um, but because there's more room to expand, it takes a little bit longer for, for symptoms to develop. And uh, Dr. Jane can talk more about the symptoms, but a lot of times it's weight loss. And Yeah, gastric cancer often uh, will present uh, late when it becomes truly symptomatic because the stomach can stretch and, you know, they often will have to go quite large before they actually cause someone to feel full. Sometimes they can present earlier with pain. Oftentimes they can even present with anemia. If patients have a cancer that's bleeding and their blood counts are low, they notice dark school, stool, that may be diagnosed uh, that way as well. So how do you dis how do you determine where the cancer is? What sorts of tests do you do to? One of the things that's in common with both of our uh, both esophageal and stomach cancers is we typically start our evaluation with an endoscopy and often uh, a laparoscopic surgery to uh, locate the tumor and also to uh, to stage it. And uh, so we're able to go down with a, uh, an endoscope, actually see exactly where the tumor is. And we look at it with a different eye than, than maybe some of the gastroenterologists might because we're looking at it for how uh, are we going to be able to remove this tumor and um, even more importantly, how are we going to put things back together again once it's out. And that uh, that insight uh, has a lot, is it provides a lot of the driving force to determining whether something is esophageal or stomach is how you're going to put them back together again. And uh, what we've been able to do uh, as a team is we've been able to unify our approach to those early diagnostic maneuvers so that if a patient who has a gastric cancer ends up in my uh, operating room and, and I notice that it is a gastric cancer, I know exactly what Dr. Jane is going to want done for that patient and I can take care of those things so that the patient doesn't lose any time because they ended up uh, quote unquote with the wrong doctor first and then we can discuss those patients later and move along as if we miss nothing. So this integrated approach is incredibly important. In my mind the very first and foremost process is to make the distinction is this a gastric cancer 
or is this an esophageal cancer? And this typically involves uh, an endoscopy, and usually it's one of us that'll do it. Dr. Wallen will make that distinction, or it'll be a gastroenterologist in our group who is very experienced in distinguishing uh, the difference. And once that distinction is made, the subtleties of treatment don't end there. Uh, in gastric cancer, for example, you may require a surgery first approach, or even in a cancer that can be removed in its entirety based on the scan, sometimes it's more appropriate to do chemotherapy up front or chemotherapy alone based on whether there's microscopic disease in the abdomen, based on whether lymph nodes may be involved. So we do a lot of other staging uh, staging means finding how extensive the cancer is, which may not be immediately apparent. This can involve a special kind of an ultrasound endoscopy to see how deep the tumor goes into the gastric wall or whether lymph nodes are involved. It may involve a PET scan. Sometimes it even involves instilling saline into the abdomen to see if microscopic cells have shed. All of this can radically alter what should be done next, whether it should be a chemotherapy or a surgery first approach. And you need to have expertise. Similarly, as Dr. Wallen can comment on, with esophageal cancer, surgery first is not always right. And in our integrated approach, not only are the surgeons integrated, but we also have a team of medical oncologists, pathologists, radiation oncologists, radiologists, gastroenterologist, a full team of experts reviews every case and formulates an individualized treatment plan for each patient. To, you're together around a table together, yes. right, discussing this. And um, are, are there, do arguments arise sometimes where one physician thinks this is the way to do it and one says this way? And how do you work that out? It's a pretty collegial atmosphere. Sure. And, you know, we work together so often that, you know, we, we, we see eye to eye on uh, on a great many things. And, you know, as you get to know people that you work with, you get to know how they think. And sometimes you even anticipate uh, the objections that people may have going into it. And you can assuage those, uh, those objections by, you know, performing different evaluations and making sure that we have a unified approach to working up the patient. And since we agree in the beginning, at the outset, how things are going to be done, then generally speaking, we arrive at the same place in the end. But we don't always. You know, what's interesting is the, the case of a hung jury Sometimes it does happen, and that's not always a bad thing because then, you know, when you have a group of experts who sometimes have a differing or an uncertain opinion, it enables us to say maybe we actually should send out this pathology specimen to the National Cancer Institute to have it looked at by a worldwide expert to look at it and help render an opinion. When you have different groups around the table, and something comes up that no one's sure about, it actually ultimately always leads to better care for our patients. Well, I was thinking as a patient, it's got to be tremendously reassuring to know that there's so many experts collaborating just about your particular situation. I mean, that's got to make someone feel confident and, and cared for. I think it's increasingly for all cancer types, uh, the emerging standard of care it should be the standard of care. Now, from what I understand, um, a lot of these cancers, are when they're diagnosed, they're already pretty far advanced. There, there's That's not correct. a whole lot of early symptoms. 
Yeah, they, they, as we said earlier on, you know, it, it does. A tumor in the esophagus has to get fairly large before it starts to cause trouble with swallowing, and tumors in the stomach even more so because it's so stretchy, it has so much room to expand, and so that's why uh, a lot of these patients don't go straight to surgery because cancer is quite advanced, and, and to some extent, uh, as we go through this process of staging, uh, we end up presuming that the cancers uh, are even more advanced than what we see. You know, one of the reasons that we, we do chemotherapy and sometimes even radiation up front is because it's so likely that these cancers have spread beyond what we see at the point of diagnosis that we really need to take care of that disease that is spread beyond the initial area of the tumor uh, because that's the stuff that really is dangerous. People don't die from cancers in their stomach or their esophagus. They die from the cancers that have spread to other parts in their body. And so that becomes the treatment priority. Um, and it's important because a lot of patients come in and they're very anxious to have, they want the tumor out. You know, they want to have that operation and it's not always the most important part of their treatment. And, you know, by advanced, you know, there's a spectrum of advanced. Advanced can mean the tumor has spread from the stomach or from the esophagus to other parts of the body, such as the liver or the lungs. And in those cases, uh, surgery is generally not part of the equation. Uh, typically, I mean, it's usually chemotherapy, but there's also a lesser degree of advancement where maybe the cancers have grown into surrounding tissues or nearby nodes. And in that situation, even though it may be technically possible to remove all of the cancer with a surgery first approach, patients actually will often do better, will get a much better outcome if we can leverage it by giving chemotherapy or other treatments such as radiation, in some cases up front, to shrink these tumors down and make it more likely to get it all out. And again, these distinctions can be subtle as to when you should do uh, chemotherapy first or surgery first, and you really do need an experienced group of people uh, putting their heads together to help come up with an individualized plan. Is this something once um, it's diagnosed, it really needs to be act on quickly? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, time is precious. And uh, we see our referrals, both Dr. Wallen and myself. Our, our goal is to get patients in the door uh, within one week. And uh, we've actually been quite successful uh, in doing this. Yeah, I think it's also important to to realize, though, just for patients who are nervous and who are anxious, cancer surgery is not an emergency. You know, patients often ask me, you know, what's happening during this week to my cancer? Is it spreading while I'm sitting here waiting for my appointment that's three days from now? No, that's not something that you should be worrying about. Um, you know, we do need to get things done quickly. Outcomes are better uh, when we when we do move fast, but it's not something that needs to be done tomorrow or tonight. Um, you know, you have a few days you don't need to worry about it. Generally speaking, uh, it's important to get these treatments, you know, started, you know, within a few weeks to a month, um, and that's when outcomes are best. So people shouldn't be sitting at home worrying that if they can't be seen tomorrow that they're going to die from their cancer. Well, well that's good to know. Well, and, and it's encouraging to know Upstate um, has treated patients all along, but now there's this multi multidisciplinary team. It's a little more formalized approach of collaboration to care. So thank you so much for coming in to explain this to us. My guests have been Dr. Jason Wallen and Dr. A.J. Jane. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about colorectal cancers. 
on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Among cancers that affect both men and women, colorectal cancer is the second leading cause of cancer death in the United States. But this disease is highly preventable. Here to discuss this with us is the medical director of Upstate Medical University's colorectal oncology program, Dr. Jerry Bim. Thanks for being here. Good and morning. I, I should also mention that March is National Colorectal Cancer Awareness Month. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Um, so let's start off with, is it true that most colon cancers begin as polyps? Yes, uh, that's true. Uh, it's the vast majority of, uh, of uh, colorectal cancers. And therefore, uh, uh, the uh, colorectal cancer is preventable. Uh, what I'm uh, trying to say is that uh, when we catch the polyps, in, uh, in a stage when uh, there is no malignant cells in them and we remove them with, uh, uh, during a, a colonoscopy, uh, we basically eliminate uh, the cancer risk. It is known fact that uh, if all the patients that are uh, screened are compliant with uh, our recommendations, and uh, in fact, uh, <clears throat> uh, all the all the uh, uh, folks at age of fifty, if they would get screened and followed up uh, properly as recommended, we would uh, decrease the incidence of colorectal cancer by ninety percent. That's and the huge, ninety percent mortality wow. rate by ninety percent. This number specifically applies to patients who are found to have polyps. So those those patients actually benefit from a colonoscopy uh, the most. So if you look at the numbers, every year uh, 50,000 people in the United States uh, die of uh, colorectal cancer. So if everybody indeed would be compliant with our uh, recommendations in terms of screening and surveillance, then the number would go to 5,000, which is... Uh, uh, clearly a very striking uh, difference. And by screening, we mean colonoscopy? Uh, a colonoscopy is really uh, the number one recommended uh, screening method. The uh, uh, yield of uh, uh, prevention is, uh, uh, you know, the most significant. However, any form of screening uh, has been shown to be beneficial including uh, screening uh, the stool for presence of uh, occult blood, uh, uh, which is done by usually the primary care providers who uh, give out uh, cards and uh, a little bit of stool is placed on a card and uh, uh, we can detect whether there is small amount of blood. Uh, barium enema, which is a radiology test, or flexible sigmoidoscopy, which, which is a short version of uh, a colonoscopy is also uh, beneficial. It will uh, show 
uh, polyps as well. But, uh, you know, in, in my mind, uh, you know, it's almost like uh, screening for uh, breast cancer and examining just uh, one, one breast. There's a lot of discussion about uh, a virtual colonoscopy, but uh, at this point, uh, we are not uh, uh, at a stage when this would be uh, universally recommended. So it's not uh, among the uh, approved uh, modalities and uh, patients will have uh, uh, trouble uh, getting the insurance companies uh, pay for it. So let's, just to be clear, um, colonoscopy is when the doctor goes into the rectum, into the colon with a, a flexible camera. To, and you're looking for polyps, right? Correct. Or anything else unusual, I guess? But uh, We are looking for any abnormalities, uh, sometimes uh, rarely, though uh, the cancers might not arise from polyps. So uh, colonoscopy will detect all that. And, uh, of course, uh, it is always better to detect something that's very early because the prognosis is significantly uh, better uh, than uh, it is uh, when the symptoms arrive. Also, a colonoscopy can show inflammatory bowel disease, which can be occasionally asymptomatic, and people with inflammatory bowel disease will be at increased risk, so that always has got uh, some benefits in terms of uh, our awareness of it. Now, would a person, a person wouldn't know they have polyps unless a doctor went in and found them, right? There's that, no symptoms. So. That is correct. Okay. And when symptoms uh, arise, it's usually too late. Uh, at the same time, uh, a polyp can uh, cause bleeding, so uh, uh, therefore the occult blood test is, is also beneficial. So is the recommendation for screening age 50, is that still what the, for most people? Correct. Uh, most cancers uh, arise, most colorectal cancers arise randomly. In uh, 70% of patients, we really do not have any family history uh, of it. And uh, so we have to go by the risk factors. And one of the risk factors is age because we know that at age of 50, uh, the uh, incidence, the likelihood that you're going to get colorectal cancer goes uh, rapidly up as you, as you age. So, um, therefore, the, the recommendation indeed is to start at age of 50. The evidence is uh, so strong that the House of Representatives actually mandated all insurance companies to uh, pay for it. That's good to know. Now, uh, you mentioned age being a risk factor. Are there risk factors that we have control over that we can do something about um, when we're younger to reduce our chances of developing? Yes. So uh, there are risk factors that we cannot really influence. Uh, uh, age, yes, we can't. Uh, then uh, family history and then uh, another risk factor that is associated with uh, increased uh, likelihood of colorectal uh, cancer is uh, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. And there are some rare syndromes uh, such as uh, polyposis and uh, Lynch syndrome or uh, non-polyposis uh, cancer syndrome. But uh, it is present only in about 
5% of patients. So uh, once again, most uh, patients uh, do get uh, colorectal cancer without any known uh, history or without any risk factors. Another risk factor I forgot to mention is presence of polyps uh, within a family. So uh, let's go back to your original question regarding what factors uh, can we influence. Uh, recently it's been shown that uh, obesity is a huge uh, factor uh, in terms of uh, colorectal cancer. Uh, unfortunately, the rate of obesity in the United States is rapidly progressing. 60% uh, of our adult population is, is obese and we are uh, hands down leading uh, in terms of uh, the first, first world countries. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, the world ranking, uh, the, the only uh, countries that are more obese than the United States are the uh, Pacific Rim Islands. But uh, uh, in those circumstances, uh, when people get large, uh, there's traditionally and culturally uh, obesity associated with well-being and power. So, uh, and there are some other interesting factors that uh, contribute to that. Nevertheless, uh, <clears throat> uh, here in the United States, that's a uh, huge problem. And uh, there are other cancers besides uh, colorectal cancer that are, that are associated with obesity. Now, when people are obese, they are very likely not eating healthy. Um, I wanted to ask about diet. That, does and that play that, a big role? That comes to, to the subject of, uh, of diet, and that does play a big role. When, when people eat healthy, it is very unlikely that they would become obese because eating healthy means eating a lot of fiber. A healthy diet should, uh, uh, for, for women, have at least... Uh, 20 grams of bran of fiber a day and so, <clears throat> you know it's it's uh, uh, basically on on every single item we buy at grocery store it does say how much fiber is in it so we should always be aware uh, that uh, in, in in women we should uh, uh, consume 20 grams of fiber in men uh, 30 grams of fiber so once you once you uh, consume the recommended uh, amount of fiber, your bowel habits are going to be healthier, regular. So the potential carcinogens that are in, in the stool, the exposure of your bowel to these carcinogens is going to be markedly decreased uh, because of uh, healthy bowel habits. Oh, interesting. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the medical director of the colorectal oncology program, Dr. Jerry Bim. Uh, I wanted to ask, do we know what causes colon cancer? Uh, we do not know. There is going to be some genetic predisposition in minority of, of patients, and there is going to be uh, uh, multiple factors that we you know, call risk factors. Uh, we mentioned obesity. We mentioned diet, red meats, uh, a lot of fat. We also know about smoking. We know about alcohol. Uh, for uh, in terms of alcohol, for men, it is acceptable to have two drinks a day. 
uh, for female population just one drink a day. Once you go above uh, that uh, magic number, uh, the risks of not only colorectal cancer but other cancers uh, goes up. And we were talking always about uh, smoking. Uh, activity, uh, and that goes with, uh, you know, obesity as well, because people who are active actually can decrease their risk of not only colorectal cancer, but other cancers. Now, you mentioned with colonoscopy, um, if you see polyps, you can remove them during the colonoscopy or catch, you know, catch it at an early stage before it's kind of developed into cancer. What is the outlook and how do you treat cancers that are more advanced? So we have uh, multiple uh, modalities. And of course, uh, uh, once uh, a cancer is diagnosed, we have to uh, establish what stage uh, that cancer is, because that will determine how we uh, approach it. Uh, that will determine, uh, uh, in general, the prognosis of the patient. So uh, we have uh, essentially uh, three major uh, modalities, which is uh, chemotherapy, uh, surgery, and uh, radiation. Radiation usually applies only to uh, the cancers that are in the most distal part of the large bowel, which is the rectum. So the deepest part? Uh, the, the deepest part in the pelvis, that's uh, an area that uh, responds uh, very well to radiation. Uh, the colon uh, cancer, as opposed to rectal cancer, uh, we do rarely use uh, radiation for many reasons. The algorithm uh, in terms of chemotherapy is rapidly changing it's in flux so we usually tailor uh, the chemotherapy regimens to the needs and uh, to the needs of the patients uh, and uh, in general however i have to say that the most benefit from chemotherapy are patients in stage three uh, disease okay so it really depends it really catch it early again that's the bottom line so um, very quickly before we run out of time, are there symptoms that, uh, of colon cancer that a person, if, if they're having these, they should come to see a doctor? Yes. About? What are those? So uh, the most frequent symptom would be uh, bleeding uh, from the rectum. You will see blood uh, in the stool. Um, most people with blood in the stool, however, <clears throat> are diagnosed with benign conditions. So uh, there is there is chronically one uh, reason why people don't come to see a doctor because they're afraid of uh, a bad diagnosis. But most people who, who notice bleeding in, in the stool uh, actually have some benign uh, uh, disease, benign problem for it. Another one is unexplained, unexplained weight loss. Another one would be alternating bowel habits, constipation uh, with, with loose stools. Uh, sometimes unexplained uh, constipation, abdominal pain, overall fatigue, flu-like symptoms, night sweats, uh, that would be all symptoms that should raise some uh, red should flag. Get checked out. Well, thank you so much. This has been very informational. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Jerry Bim, the medical director of Upstate Medical University's colorectal oncology program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.
Next up, what happens if you have hepatitis C during pregnancy? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A physician from the Regional Perinatal Center at Upstate is here today to talk about hepatitis C in pregnancy. Dr. Helene Bernstein is an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology and of microbiology and immunology. Thank you for being here and allowing us to tap your expertise. Thank you for having me. Well, I know that rates of um, hepatitis C infection are rising among adults in the United States, so it makes sense to me that this could be an issue during pregnancy. Um, But let's start with a description of what hepatitis C is and how it's spread. Sure. I think that's pretty important. So the word hepatitis really means an inflammation of your liver, and a number of things can inflame any part of our body. When we talk about hepatitis C, it is a viral infection that that causes an inflammation of your liver. And it is actually a flavivirus. There are different viruses that can cause inflammation of the liver. And why it's important is that this particular virus has the capacity to form chronic, i.e. lifelong if not treated infection. And the end result is a person's liver being compromised potentially with cirrhosis or liver cancer. So it's a virus, is it spread through the air? No, you're not going to catch this through the air. Um, One of the challenges is is that it is felt to be spread parenterally, which means really blood to blood. So we think about IV drug use, but this is expanded even in the normal population to even include tattoos or body art or piercing that you get at a non-licensed location. And even when we use our screening criteria, we find that over 20% of the patients that are positive do not have a risk factor per the screening criteria, which really means we need to be thinking about this for all of our patients in terms of identifying patients that carry the virus because identification is the first step to optimizing their health. So do I understand you correctly? 20% of patients that are found to have hepatitis C haven't used IV drugs or or say they haven't or haven't had illicit tattoos or there's not a a reason that you can see that they're infected. Yes. And that just means that we need to be thinking about it in terms of the potential for all of us to have it. Um, And that is um, a rationale to consider screening everybody in the population because we can't have targeted screening based on risk factors that we know are accurate. So um, is there a a screening for hepatitis C right now? Yes, there is a screening, and the screening is is to look at serology to see if there's immunologic evidence that your body has been exposed to hepatitis C. So that would be from um, like a blood test? Yes. Okay. Um, Barring that, say you don't have a screen, how would you know or how would you suspect that you have hepatitis C infection? Are there symptoms? That's part of the problem in that most people will be asymptomatic until or unless they get these serious diseases that could be near the end of your life. So our goal is really 
to screen because the opportunity to treat and cure and have an impact comes before many, if not all, people have symptoms. So we can't depend on a patient coming to us saying, hey, I don't feel well. Okay. So there are ways to treat and there's ways to cure? Yes. And and that's some of the exciting things is that the ways to treat and cure are actually fairly new. This used to be called non-A, non-B hepatitis back in the 1980s. We didn't know what caused it. We didn't have a treatment. And since I've been in the practice of medicine, we've progressed from first being able to identify it and now having a treatment that is actually curative. And that in itself is a reason to be more aware and screen because if it's, if it's a disease that we can't impact, a reasonable person might say, is it really important to know? But now that we can cure people, it, it is increasingly important to know. So should people um, be seeking, you know, ask their um, physicians if, for a screening? I think that any person that sees themselves at some risk certainly should talk with their primary care provider and treatment guidelines or or screening guidelines for all doctors is that a patient asking is enough for all of us to offer the test. When I look at as an obstetrician, what should I be doing? I think that there's a large population of our population that do meet screening criteria. However, because identifying women that are infected is, is an opportunity to both cure the woman and prevent perinatal transmission, there's a strong argument for screening all pregnant women. And we do screen women while they're pregnant for a number of other diseases, so it's not beyond the context of what we're already doing. And it wouldn't be an additional, it's a blood test, right? So mm-hmm. there's plenty of blood tests that pregnant women undergo. Yes, we we get a routine panel and it would just be adding one more test to the panel. It would be pretty unnoticeable to a woman undergoing prenatal care. So let's talk about how a pregnant woman um, potentially is affected by hepatitis C um, and and how the baby would be affected by hepatitis C. Um, Looking at the pregnant woman, it, it, although the pregnancy is there, it, it doesn't affect the hepatitis C substantially one way or the other. But I look at prenatal care in general as an opportunity to engage a woman in healthcare, not only for the benefit of the pregnancy, but for the benefit of the woman. And this is something that I look at as as health maintenance or preventative or care for a woman throughout her lifespan, or in this case, optimization. So first of all, it's, it's identifying somebody that has a chronic disease that could limit their lifespan And now that we have a cure in place, talking about things we can do to optimize their lifespan. When we look at hepatitis C in the context of pregnancy, it's not going to affect the woman so much, but we do know that when a pregnancy is impacted by hepatitis C infection, that there are increased rates of preterm delivery, low birth weight infants, intrahepatic cholestasis, and oh, other what, complications. What is that? that is when the bile gets a little bit stuck in the um, outflow tracts and it, and it could make somebody itchy or a small amount of jaundice. When okay. you look at this, and instead of focusing on big words that may not mean a whole lot to an individual not in the healthcare field, I think that you can really hear that the pregnancy outcome may be less than optimum. And that in itself is a reason to identify and potentially treat because there is a high likelihood that if we treat the woman, which causes 
what we call a sustained virologic response, SVR, or cure, that it may eliminate these risk factors that are associated with hepatitis C in the setting of pregnancy. Huh, interesting. Let me remind our listeners, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Helene Bernstein, an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology and of microbiology and immunology. And we're talking about hepatitis C during pregnancy. Um, okay, so I, I understand there could be some impact on the pregnancy and, and delivery. Um, the baby could also transmit hepatitis C, right? Could the baby catch, yes, and, catch it and from the Yes, and that is mom? also important as well. So we know that if a mom is, has hepatitis C, that the transmission to, rate to the baby is 2 to 11%. And some things impact that, like coexisting HIV infection or what the viral load is. But because hepatitis C is a chronic disease, there is every likelihood that if we obtain a virologic cure in mom during pregnancy, that we're going to eliminate this transmission risk to the baby. So right now in the United States, there are 68 to 100,000 children that are HCV infected or hepatitis C infected, secondary to being delivered. And one of the big challenges, whether you're talking about a mom or a baby, is appropriate follow-up. So if you know that a, if a child is at risk for acquiring this chronic condition that could limit their life, it's obviously critical to have follow-up to optimize their health. But epidemiologic studies show that this is not happening as planned, i.e. 100%, if anything, as often as 50% of the time, the appropriate follow-up and treatment isn't happening. And that, mean, that makes prevention all the more important. So you have these babies that have this chronic disease um, as as babies that's going to potentially shorten their lifespan. Mm-hmm. For wow, what? Well, what do you besides following a, a newborn that's found to have hepatitis C? Can they be treated? I believe they can. Being an obstetrician, I don't know the most about this. A pediatrician would be better answer be better able to answer this. But what I can say is from someone that is not only an obstetrician, but a parent, to me, it means preventing that from happening is something that we should be considering. And given the safety of these drugs in pregnancy, something that I've been advocating for. Hmm. It would be better to prevent it rather than have to deal with it after it's... Yes. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about the, the mom, the pregnancy of the mom. Um, is there any concern about a risk to the newborn if it's uh, the father that has hepatitis C? Or? Not so much from the father unless there is transmission from father to mother during pregnancy, and that doesn't happen a lot. Okay. I would still advocate, particularly if it, if it is the male partner in a relationship that is infected, to go on ahead and get treated for his health, and then no matter how small that risk is, it's eliminated. So let me ask you, if you have a, a patient... Um, a pregnant woman who's found to have hepatitis C, what sort of conversation do you have with her? What, what do you offer? When I see a patient, um, my first step is to explain to them what they do have and what it means to them, to understand what it means in the context of their life, and then also talk to them about what it means in the context of their pregnancy and what we can do about it. Okay. Until approximately 2011, there was not widely available therapy. So it was a conversation that was a little bit 
you know, dejecting as a physician. We were telling patients that they had chronic that they had a chronic disease that was going to impact the quality and longevity of their life, but we didn't have a cure. Now that we have a cure in place is after we let the patient know their status is to let them know steps that can be undertaken to optimize their health. And I think after letting them know about these steps and treatment is recommended for everybody is talking about when is the best time to do treatment. And probably um, probably one of the concerns is, is it going to be safe for the developing baby? Most of these medications are as safe, if not safer, for the developing baby as other medications we use in pregnancy. There's also new data that shows that the time that earlier treatment is more effective than later. So when I look at somebody, if I'm going to ask them to delay treatment for their own health on behalf of the pregnancy, I feel like I need to be able to ask them to accept that compromise for the benefit of the pregnancy. And in this case, we really don't have any evidence that it would benefit. We have suspicion that treating during pregnancy may actually optimize the pregnancy outcome. Hmm. Okay, well, interesting. Well, now, what about other hepatitis infections? We've we've heard of hepatitis A and hepatitis B. Um, are there similar concerns for a, a woman who's pregnant who's infected with one of the other types of hepatitis, um, or are they different? They they are different, but there's some unification there. So, first of all, all three of these are the predominant hepatitis infections that happen in the United States. So it's important to know a little bit about the differences because I think that most people's families have been touched by it in one way or the other and, and what it means and how you treat it is completely different. So hepatitis A is usually an acute infection, meaning that you're not going to keep it forever. You may be more sick when you get it, but eventually it will go away. And this is always... This is also transmitted uh, via the oral fecal route. So if anyone has ever heard of outbreaks secondary to restaurants and things like that, that is hepatitis A. And that's from uh, food workers not washing their hands appropriately. Yes. Handling food. Mm -hmm. okay. And there's also a vaccination for hepatitis A. Oh. Right now, philosophy is, is that if anyone has any hepatitis infection, that their liver is already you know, under attack or having inflammation, that we need to prevent other ones. So if you have one, you should get vaccinated where vaccines are available for any other disease. So there is a hepatitis A vaccine. So if I see a woman with hepatitis C, one question is, have you been vaccinated? And if not, offer them the vaccination, again, to optimize their health, to protect them from another infection that could compromise their liver function. I think in looking in the big picture, though, hepatitis A is something that will run its course and eventually not be an issue. Hepatitis B, on the other hand, is a little bit of the combination of the two, and that yes, there's a vaccination for it, and right now, children are vaccinated routinely as part of CDC-recommended vaccination. What we are faced with as clinicians, as adults, people that when they were children, routine vaccination was not in place. So they're not vaccinated. That could make them susceptible. And again, if a woman is hepatitis C infected, we need to make sure that she has received vaccination against hepatitis B and that she demonstrates adequate levels of protective immunity 
because if she's been vaccinated and there's not evidence of protective immunity, we need to provide a booster to make sure she has that protection in place. Now, if we're talking about a woman that has hepatitis B infection, this is a virus that can also cause a chronic infection. And there are things that we can do to limit the possibility of this being transmitted to the baby that are distinct from hepatitis C. Wow. Well, interesting. There's there's a lot to consider with this. Uh, my guest has been Dr. Helene Bernstein, Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and of Microbiology and Immunology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We are living in a time of constant migrations, displacements, forced removals. The stories of the people who endure these dislocations are not often told. But Oregon professor and poet Christopher T. Keveny gives voice to them in his poem, Native, non-native. Insofar as the non-native has his own problems, the umbrella that he carries around just in case, along with the broken compass, more boomerang really than magnet-oriented, to bring him back to the starting point. Note his surprising faith in the dismal science, homespun after a fashion, burnt bridges he never intended to cross, the coffin nail predicated on its own failed logic. He learned all that he needed to know about playing the outsider in the margin, where shore met simply more shore, and those who could afford the journey dreamt of a tide that kept creeping away, a spot where the natives had piled rock upon rock as a kind of memorial to the lapping of waves, the ideal location for non-natives to gather after lunch before slipping away in clusters to lay low until nightfall, to trace freedom in the sand with their big toes, a ritual to keep the brokers at bay. It will never be as you imagined, says the native to the non-native. Arriving has always been the easy part. Surmising the probability of the sea in a carnival town the place where he and his family arrived with shawls, spices, and the ingenuity of duct tape, cutbacks through the steep promontory up from the beach merely prolonged the agony of acculturation. The nod of sunflowers all the way to the safe house, obliging them to make a day of it, credit accrued for the time served in the camps where he rarely bedded down, banking on small consolations in a ravaged city the not-quite-young non-native, deprived of the insularity of the native drawl.
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, we'll talk with Syracuse University head football coach Dino Babers about making fitness part of everyday life. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening. Thank you.